914 Red Pew Bibles. Uh, this morning we're picking back up in our series, looking at, uh, starting with verse 7 and then reading through verse 15. So we're going to be covering uh, the rest of chapter 6. Uh, once I was at a, uh, it, was, it was a Christmas party, but it was a party at a, at a building that had an enormous fireplace, a wood fireplace. And being the middle of winter, with no other way to heat the building, we had built a roaring fire there, um, which had an added benefit, because, you know, it's a party, and so we were eating, and obviously we were using paper plates, because we were all teenagers. And so when we'd finish our food, we'd actually, we'd wash our dishes by just dropping them in the fireplace. So it had, it warmed us and it disposed of our trash. It was good. Probably not the best way to do it, but we were teenagers, so there you go. <clears throat> now, at one point, I noticed that one of my friends had actually, he took a, he had taken one of the paper cups and it was still halfway full of water and that he, he actually placed it in the middle of the fire, in, in the middle of the coals. And as I said, we were, all, we were all doing things like that, so nobody thought that was out of the ordinary. But as I looked a little bit later, and I, I started watching the cup, and I realized that unlike the paper plates we had been putting in the fire, this, this cup did not burst into flames. And surprisingly, it did catch fire, but only around the rim. It actually burned down to the level of the water that was in it. And then it stopped. And it sat there, just as if it had been sitting on the table. Now, when my friend first put the cup in the fire, I hadn't thought much about it. If anything, I expected it to, to catch fire and the water that was in it to spill out into the coals and to dampen the thing that was keeping us warm. So I wasn't really glad that he was doing it. But instead, it sat there unconsumed. The water inside it actually came to a boil, but the cup remained. And it was fascinating because the cup was flammable. But it wasn't catching fire. It, it wasn't even turning black. And so it held my attention. And as I watched it, I began to realize that the reason it wasn't burning up was because of the water that was in it. The presence of the water in the cup preserved it against the heat of the flames that were around it. Now we're looking at a passage this morning where the opposition to the early church which it faced for its allegiance to Jesus and the good news of the gospel is going to reach a flashpoint. Trouble has been brewing in Jerusalem for a while now, but now the pressure being put on the church is going to skyrocket. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Jesus tells us that we will face trouble for his name. That's why he tells us to count the cost of following him. Because while we receive the salvation he has secured, while he freely gives it to all who believe, following Jesus as his disciple is a costly road to walk. It will take you through fire and flame. Because Satan is an enemy who hates God, and who hates Christ, and who hates you. And he will use every weapon in his arsenal to try and keep you from following Christ, whatever he is permitted to do. Like, like paper cups, we go into the flames with no hope and our own ability to resist. But this is where the victory of Christ matters for us because as we will see, the strength to resist, the strength to remain, even in the face of the most ferocious sort of opposition and struggles and hardships, comes to us in our weakness from the presence of God who is with us 
to keep us and to preserve us. And this is a reason to be glad in the face of anything we might come against. Because God is a God who is with us. And I think that is what Luke would have us to know as we read about the life and the testimony and the triumphant martyrdom of a man named Stephen. So if you would please stand with me out of respect for God's word as I read from Acts, starting in the book, or starting in chapter 6, reading verses 7 through 15. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They, they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. The Lord is a God who fills and through his fullness, he satisfies us and makes our hearts glad. And he preserves his people against every foe. This is a fullness that has been secured for us by Jesus through his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. This is why heaven rejoices in Revelation 5, exalting the lamb who was slain whose blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, making them a kingdom and priest to God. It is the presence of this victorious Lamb through the Holy Spirit which abides in us, which goes with us, and which authorizes us to speak the good news of salvation. And we... Well, the significance of the fullness of God in and with his people to preserve us is what we're going to look at here. Even in the midst of suffering, as we look at the life of Stephen and what Luke has recorded about him. Now, if, you, uh, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, or if you maybe have been reading ahead, you might uh, be surprised to see how much space Luke really has dedicated to telling us about Stephen. More is said about Stephen in three chapters than is said about the majority of the apostles. There's a number of reasons for this. Stephen is historically important, since his death is what we're going to see is going to result in the scattering of the church, but also the spread of the gospel to other places. 
He's also important to the progression of the narrative of this book because Luke takes an opportunity here at the stoning of Stephen to introduce us to another man, a man named Saul, later called Paul, who we're going to spend a lot of time looking at his life. But besides all that, I think that the main reason Luke dedicates so much space to talking about Stephen here is because of the way that God triumphed over these enemies of the gospel through him. Granted, Stephen's death may not look like a victory, at least not in the short term. I mean, he does lose his life. But, as we will see at the end of chapter 7, he gains so much more. And in Stephen, we learn the faithfulness of Jesus' promises when he says that whoever loses his life for his sake and for the gospel's sake will, in fact, save it. So there's a lot to be said about Stephen, not only in the way that he was faithful unto death, but perhaps even more importantly, we also see how he was faithful in the way he lived his life. And we see that this was a direct result of the work of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit in him. And that's really what I want to draw your attention to this morning. As the first martyr of Jesus, we tend to focus on Stephen's death. And we'll get to that. But today, I'm really more interested in talking to you about the way that Stephen lived. Because Luke has really given us a glimpse into the way that God has designed for us to live as new creatures, as people who have been united to Christ by faith in his death and his resurrection, who have then received the gift of the Holy Spirit and have therefore been made secure in the promise and the hope of eternal life. We learn how to live from Stephen even as much as we learn from his death. So what I want to look at this morning, what I want you to see as we look at Stephen's life is that the same Spirit who was at work in him, who preserved him, even in the face of death, is the same Spirit who dwells in you if you are a Christian. And that does a lot for the way that you live. So the main idea that I want to draw your attention to this morning is this. We live in the victory of Christ when we live in the fullness of the Spirit. We live in the victory of Christ when we live in the fullness of the Spirit of the Spirit. And I have three points that I want to make to you from this as we look at Stephen's life leading up uh, to his trial. First, we want to look at the victory of the Word. We want to look at the victory of God's Word. Second, we're going to look at the fullness of the Spirit. The fullness of the Spirit. And finally, we're going to look at the face of Stephen. The face of Stephen. Let's begin with the victory of God's Word. The Gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection was having a major impact on the city of Jerusalem. In verse 7, Luke tells us that the number of disciples in Jerusalem was multiplied greatly. Not only that, he says that a great many of the priests actually became obedient to the faith. So things are on fire in Jerusalem. With a situation involving the care of the Hellenistic widows resolved, Luke tells us that the church was continuing to grow. More than that, we see that as it grew in number, it also grew in maturity. And so the, the testimony of the church was continuing to bear fruit, even as it faced some of these growing pains. Actually, I think the reason that Luke means for us to understand, I think what he means for us to understand here is that actually the expansion of leadership that we looked at with the serving seven was instrumental in the 
progress and in the maturity of the church because it allowed the apostles to dedicate themselves to the ministry of the word without neglecting the practical needs of the church. God clearly blessed the decision to bring these men on board. And so Luke tells us that the word of God continued to increase. So the church doesn't look the same here as it did when we were looking at those 120 disciples first meeting in the upper room leading to the day of Pentecost. But neither did Jerusalem. People everywhere were hearing the good news of Jesus, the the message that Jesus had commissioned his church to speak, and they were coming to faith. Look at the end of verse 7. Luke says that even a great many of the priests actually were becoming obedient to this faith. Now, the the key thing that Luke wants us to notice here about this kingdom expansion that was happening is that it was happening through the Word of God. As the Word went out, this increase, this change happened. So it was the Word of God that was at work to bring men and women in Jerusalem to Christ. Knowing what we do about the response of the Jewish leaders to the gospel, I think it's pretty surprising to us to hear that so many of the priests were actually coming to faith as well. Uh, Now, one thing we need to see is that there were a lot of lay-level priests who would have been living in Jerusalem, working at the temple, serving the people. These men weren't part of that upper leadership that was so adamantly opposed to the gospel, but they still played an important role in the worship that went on in the temple. So they would have been there. They would have heard the apostles preaching. They knew God's law and the prophets and the Psalms. And so Luke makes it very clear the reason they were coming to faith was because of the way that the word of God was working in them. They began to see how all the things they had been commissioned to do were fulfilled in Christ and by Christ. And so they were coming to faith. Now back at the end of chapter 5, Luke told us that even in the face of the threats of the council, the apostles did not cease to teach and to preach in the temple and in homes across the city. So these priests would have been hearing Peter and John and James and the other apostles preaching and teaching from God's word, pointing pointing the people to how Jesus had fulfilled the scriptures through his death and resurrection. And so as they listened to the word, uh, they were seeing... uh, what the apostles were saying, what they were doing, and they themselves were coming to be obedient to the faith. Now, Romans, what, what we see there really is what Romans ten seventeen says, which is that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So that's happening right before our eyes in what Luke has recorded here. And that's an important detail, not something to just be glanced over. Uh, Because at the beginning of chapter 6, Luke says that the word was increasing and that the disciples were multiplying. When you read that again in verse 7, you tend to go, oh, okay, I already knew that. But I think actually Luke has given us an important detail, something not to be glanced over. Because as we see this going on, we see that how the word is bearing fruit. There, There are a lot of ways to get to get people to be part of a movement. You can get people to do lots of things in lots of different ways. Marketing is huge. But there's only one way for people to be born again. There's only one thing that brings about real change, not just to the accidentals of a person's life, the the, the general things that they do, but actually the reason they do those things. There's only one way to bring about real change in a person's heart, and that is the Word. It's the word of Christ, the good news of the gospel. 
The changes that took place in the, in, in, in the early church, specifically um, in the calling of these seven men who made sure the needs of the church were met, those changes supported the ministry of the word. And so Luke means for us to see that um, because that specifically, because we're not being faithful to Jesus' commission if we leave this priority out. And that's because of what the gospel does when it takes root in a person's life. The gospel changes people. It doesn't just give them new morals. It doesn't just change the way they talk or the music they listen to or the way they think of others or the way they spend their Sunday or the way they go to work. The gospel changes us at the very core of who we are. This is a message that raises the dead because it's a message that goes out not only in word but in power, being used by God and applied to people's lives by the Holy Spirit who fundamentally changes us, who restores us, who transforms us, and who gives us life. Luke wants us to see the victorious word at work. He wants us to see how it was changing the landscape of Jerusalem because fundamentally it was changing people at their core. They were becoming obedient to the faith. They were repenting of their sins. They were believing in Jesus, that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God. They were receiving the mark of discipleship, being baptized. And they were living out the life of Christ and how they cared for one another in the context of the church. Now, the reason that's important is just because as we come to look at Stephen and his life, if we're to really understand Stephen, the man, then really we've got to start here with God's victorious word. Stephen was a man who had been transformed by this very same message that was bearing fruit even among the priests. Everything we read about him in this passage, everything that you look at and say, wow, that's amazing. Everything he says in his sermon before the council, everything he declares, even as he's being killed, rests on his faith and his relationship with Christ. Stephen is one of the people in Jerusalem who heard the gospel and became obedient to the faith. In a second, we're going to look at Stephen's life. And I think there's a lot to be said about how he stands out. But we have to be careful. Because if we put Stephen on a pedestal, then we'll be inclined, I think, to forget that we share in the same baptism, the same faith, the same hope, the same spirit, and the same Savior that he had. The same gospel of Jesus, that Jesus' victory brought to him has come now to us. And the same spirit that filled Stephen fills believers today. I'm convinced that one of the greatest dangers to the vitality of our walk with Jesus is a contentment with a faith and a relationship with God that's just good enough. I'm convinced that one of the greatest dangers faced by Christians today is the tendency, the desire to just settle and to be satisfied with some of the riches of Christ, stopping short of all that God actually intends for His children to have. Let us long to be full and let us be confident because the same word and the same spirit that was at work in men like Stephen and Peter and John and the rest of the apostles is, in, is at work in you if you have been united to Jesus by faith. So brother, sister, press on. Don't be content with a faith that's just good enough. 
press on, as Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead. Press on into the fullness of this inheritance of grace. Now that brings us to one of the greatest gifts God has given us through Christ, and that is the Spirit. I want to look now at what it means to be full of the Spirit, this fullness of the Spirit that we see in Stephen's life. If you had to pick one word from what Luke says about Stephen, if you had to describe him just with one word, what would it be? I think it'd have to be the word full. Luke tells us that he was full of wisdom, that he was full of faith, that he was full of grace, that he was full of power, that he was full of integrity, that he was full of godliness, and finally, and most importantly, I think, that he was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, we find Stephen doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, that's, that's a really interesting thing to read because remember, Stephen had been chosen by the church to serve, to make sure the physical needs of the widows in the church in Jerusalem were being met. But there's more to Stephen, we see, than his service just to the physical needs of the church. He was also a man who was full of grace and power, and he was doing things by God's power, which demonstrated the authenticity of the gospel he was sharing with others. As he, as he did these things, Lou tells us that there were, some, there were some men who actually rose up and opposed him. And it's actually a little difficult to say for sure who these men are. Luke, Luke says that they belong to the synagogue of the freedmen. Um, he, he says that he also includes in this group uh, men who are from Cyrene, uh, Alexandrians, people from Cilicia, and Asia. Now, this synagogue, a synagogue is a place uh, in local towns where Jews could, could go and worship on the Sabbath. Uh, they would hear God's word read to them. They would meet and fellowship together. They would sing together and pray. Uh, it was different than the temple because they did not offer sacrifices at the synagogue. Now, these men belong to a, a certain synagogue, it seems, um, but it really appears by saying that, that they are aligned with this, it really, Luke really seems to be showing us they were, they were kind of part of a movement or a distinction that was outside of Jerusalem itself. Since we see that Luke, all the places that Luke mentions here are cities that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So as we try to get a, scholars go back and forth about how to exactly to read this. So, and the identity of these men is not nearly as important as just understanding the angle that they're coming from. So what we need to know really is, is it's likely that these men were just, they were Hellenistic Jews who were in Jerusalem for various reasons, who heard the gospel and took exception to it and then started arguing with Stephen as he was preaching. In verse 10 though, Luke explains that even as these men attacked Stephen and tried to, tried to uh, 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 undo what he was doing, that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Try as they might to unhinge Stephen's arguments for the gospel, they were failing. Uh, they were getting nowhere. Now, Stephen sounds like an upstanding guy. He's the kind of guy you want in your church, right? He's, he's there at the forefront serving everybody. He, 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 he's wise. He's trustworthy. We know that he loved his neighbor the way he was called to love them. Uh, we know that Stephen was a man of faith and integrity who was even doing signs and wonders in the name of Jesus that we haven't seen anyone do besides the apostles. But Luke makes it very clear that the reason Stephen proved to be such an effective apologist 
The reason that these men, these opponents of the gospel, couldn't withstand him or these arguments that he was putting to them was not because of anything Stephen had of himself. It was because he was full of the Spirit. Luke actually says, uh, he actually kind of takes Stephen out of the equation here in verse 10 when he says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. You see how he kind of pulls Luke out of it? And so it shows that these men are actually trying to oppose God. At the end of the day, these men aren't in a battle of wits with Stephen. They're in a battle against the Spirit of God. And that's why they couldn't withstand him. Similar to what we saw with Peter and John when they were put on trial, we see how Jesus' promises in Matthew 10 are coming true for Stephen when, when he promises, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So we see that very clearly. As Stephen is engaging these men, this is the Spirit of God working in him and speaking through him. He was full of wisdom because he was full of the Spirit. But the role of the Spirit in a Christian's life goes beyond just times of crisis. Stephen is described as a man who is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit back when he was first called to serve the needs of those widows. He was full of grace and power when he spoke to others about the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. He was respected and full of wisdom when he was put forward by the church to serve. And that brings us to something I think we need to consider about the fullness of the Spirit. That it's not just for times when we are to, make, when we are, uh, to give a defense for our faith, but more vitally, that the fullness of the Spirit is given to us for how we are to live and abide in Christ on a daily basis. When Luke describes Stephen as a man who was full of faith in the Holy Spirit, he actually uses the word plauros which is different than the word that he used when he was talking about how the church was filled on the, day of on the day of Pentecost. This is a term that actually refers to a way or a manner of living. Dr. Tom Schreiner explains that this filling describes those whose lives were dominated by the Spirit, those who lived in a way that, are, that was pleasing to God by the power of the Spirit, and those who spoke forth God's word as well. So we're going to understand that this fullness of the Spirit is meant to describe a lifestyle. It's a result of the work of Christ and the power of God, and it's a feature which should define the lives of every believer. Such fullness looks like what Paul describes in Colossians 1 verse 9 when he says, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what the fullness of the Spirit looks like. The gift of the Gospel isn't just a knowledge of how we are saved, but it is the power of salvation and the Holy Spirit who actually applies Jesus' work to us. 
When we are joined to Christ by faith, we are born of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to sin, who convicts us of our guilt. It's the Spirit who gives us a right view of things, who then guides us into faith. It's the Spirit who motivates us then to walk with Jesus as our Lord. And it is the Spirit who is at work to sanctify us, that is to make us holy, so that one day when we're joined to Christ in person, we will be glorified to be like Him. In verse 16, Jesus actually told His disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. The disciples did not like the sound of that. And it is a strange thing to think that Jesus' going away could actually be to our advantage. But we see what that looks like as we look at Stephen's own life. And in the life of the church really in Jerusalem, how vital the Spirit is to our life in Christ. Because Jesus has been exalted, we have been given the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who equips God's people with the tools we need to walk with one another in all unity. And even though this work of the Spirit is something that is done by Him, that is, we're passive in this, we're actually also commanded in Ephesians 5 to be filled with the Spirit, meaning we're to walk as Stephen did, according to the Spirit's leading and guidance. Paul says to the church, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, he tells us. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. That is what it means to walk in the fullness of the Spirit in relation to one another. And this is what we see was dominating Stephen's life. Not only at this crucial point leading up to his death, but in all of the way that he lived now that he'd been joined to Christ by faith. The fullness of the Spirit in his life is what clothed him in faith, grace, power, wisdom, and the same Spirit that was at work in him is likewise at work in the lives of all believers. We are called as followers of Christ to walk in this same power in which he walked, the Spirit of Christ in us. This was the filling that led Stephen to love widows and orphans, to love his unbelieving neighbors, to have mercy on those who were in need, to love his church, and then to exalt Jesus in the face of these enemies by pointing them to the glory of the risen Christ. And that brings us to our third point. We need to see the face of Stephen. When Stephen's opponents realized they couldn't resist his arguments, they decided to go a totally different route. In verse 11, Luke says that they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now Luke doesn't record what Stephen had been saying to these men, but this is a serious charge. Especially when we compare what these men uh, say to what these, the false witnesses that are brought against Stephen say, who, who declare that, that Stephen never ceased to speak words against the temple and the law. And they they go on to say, We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. 
Now Luke is very clear uh, to let us know that these men were misrepresenting Stephen, that they were twisting his words in in what F.F. Bruce calls a subtle and deadly misrepresentation of the words actually spoken. Apparently, though, it worked. These men managed with their words to drive the crowd that gathered around them into a frenzy. This man is a blasphemer, they said. He's a, he's a liar who hates God and hates the temple and hates Moses. And in the chaos of the mob, Luke says that the elders and the scribes saw their opportunity and they took it. No longer in fear of the people, they came and they seized Stephen and they brought him before the council. And there's a lot about the way that Stephen lived in a Christ-like, which, which I think we can point out and say that it's very Christ-like, but it's really at Stephen's trial that we start to really see the connections here between the way he was put on trial and accused of things which he did not do. Actually, as we look at these, these accusations against Stephen, we see that these men were accusing him of things which Jesus had been accused of when he was put on trial before his enemies. For when he had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Speaking not of the temple there, but actually of his body. As we'll see as we get into Stephen's sermon, these accusations were in fact false. Stephen had immense respect for Moses, the temple, and the law. He wasn't preaching against the law. He was speaking about the fulfillment of the law and the better temple, one of God's own making in the hearts of his people and the promise of a new covenant where God writes the law on our hearts. He was preaching about the hope of the nations and a risen Savior who gave his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled and raised it up on the third day as he had said. The integrity of Stephen's spirit-fueled sermons was twisted though and it was perverted in the hands of these wicked men. And you should know where the trajectory of all this is headed. Not to an acquittal but to a cross in the form of a lethal stone for Stephen. As we look at this, this, this is unfair. This is so wrong. These men are murderers who have no right to stand here and accuse Stephen of things he had never said because they didn't understand what he was saying, nor did they want to know about the glory of Christ. As we're looking at this, we should be feeling... This is like watching someone go on trial for something you know they didn't do. And we, as we look at this, we should be screaming, this is a mistrial. How can... And we might be asking ourselves, how how on earth could God stand by as one of his precious children, Stephen, this, this man who's full of faith, the servant of the church, How could God stand by as one of his precious children, his throne to the wolves like this? But God had a purpose and a plan for Stephen, as he also did for the prophets who were stoned and killed by the sword and thrown in pits and chased by wicked kings and queens. He had a plan for Stephen, and it was an inheritance better than life itself. And Stephen filled with the Holy Spirit, knew it. He felt it. He savored it. He had a peace about him that could not be shaken. Even as his name was slandered, even as he saw where this was going, he had a joy in a crucified Savior that couldn't be shaken. 
And so we look at verse 15, and Luke says, And gazing at him, all who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Unshakable serenity. That is what Stephen wore on his face. He was close enough to death's mouth to feel its absence of teeth. And all that occupied his mind was the glory of Jesus. The Renaissance was really bad for our perception of angels. They aren't chubby babies with wings. When people see angels in the Bible, you always find the angels saying, Don't be afraid! The Bible describes angels as messengers that are clothed in light, clothed with the holiness of God. The sort of holiness that drives the most holy of prophets that we read in the Bible to their faces, saying, Woe is me, I'm about to die. I don't know if Stephen's face was actually glowing, but Luke is very clear that Stephen's face reflected the holiness of his Lord. And we'll see next week as we look at Stephen's sermon that he had a message for this council and for everyone who opposes Christ. Stephen's life was fragile. Fragile as that paper cup in a hot fire. Why was he able to stay calm? What kept him from being overwhelmed? What kept him from lashing out in fleshly anger as these men misrepresented his words and twisted things that were true to try to kill him? What, what kept him from abandoning his Lord? Was it not the Spirit of God? The same Spirit that equipped Paul to say, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Like the water filling that cup. Stephen was preserved. The person who has the Spirit of the Lord filling them does not have to fear. Because this is what God says to His people. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Our God is a God who goes with us into the flames. He keeps us and He sustains us in the face of every danger. Every mistrial, every slander, every conflict. And we see that real word, world, right here in the life of Stephen. There's a lot of injustice in this world. But we serve a holy God who goes with his people and preserves them to make sure that the point and purpose of their lives always matters. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful ones. In John 7, verse 37, we're told that Jesus stood up and declared, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers 
of living water. And then John explains to us that Jesus actually said this of the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. As Lord in Christ, Jesus has ushered in this new age in which we live by faith in His name, filled with His Spirit, able to endure times of trouble and distress, able to give our burdens to Him, knowing that He goes with us into the fray, knowing that we are held fast and secured by the purity and the excellence of His blood in a covenant that cannot and will not and never will be shaken. This is a promise for all who believe because the Spirit is the inheritance of all who are united to Christ by faith. Stephen was an incredible man, a man you would have been proud to know. But the gift of the Spirit which filled him and led him to live the way he did is a gift which is given by Christ to all of his people. So as we look at the life of Stephen, I want to be careful because we shouldn't venerate Stephen. Rather, we should glorify God. And we should also trust God and the promise of His Spirit to rest in Him so that we may live in Him even as we are filled by Him. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we have, we have looked at the fullness of Your Spirit which was in Stephen, Your servant. There's so much to look at in Stephen's life. So much to glorify you for because all of the things that we point at and say, man, this guy, he is really excellent. We know that they are there because of your work in him. So Father, as we we look at his life, I pray that that what we've read wouldn't just be a story about a man who lived about 2,000 years ago. But that as we look at how you lived, how, you, how, you, how Stephen lived and how you empowered him to do so, that we would even see and take confidence in the promises of the gospel which, which you have given to us as well. That we would live lives that are full of the Spirit. That we would walk according to your word. That we would build one another up and live in the priorities of your kingdom. And that we would be founded and held fast in the hope of the gospel, which does not cause us to hope only in what we might receive in this life, but to live for the life that is to come. To know, as Jesus says, that since he is the resurrection and the life, that anyone who is his, if he dies, will still live with him. I pray, Father, that you would equip us and shield our hearts with these truths, so that we would have courage to walk in obedience to you. And as we do, Father, let the fullness of of Christ spill out of our lives onto the lives of others, so that they might see and know that Jesus is King to your glory. I pray this all in his holy name. Amen.